Chapter Two of The Beckoning Fair One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. The Beckoning Fair One by Oliver Onions. Chapter Two. As far as the chief business of his life, his writing, was concerned, Paul Oleron treated the world a good deal better than he was treated by it, but he seldom took the trouble to strike a balance or to compute how far, at forty-four years of age, he was behind his points on the handicap. To have done so wouldn't have altered matters, and it might have depressed Oleron. He had chosen his path, and was committed to it beyond the possibility of withdrawal. Perhaps he had chosen it in the days when he had been easily swayed by something a little disinterested, a little generous, a little noble, and had he ever thought of questioning himself, he would still have held to it that a life without nobility and generosity and disinterestedness was no life for him. Only quite recently, and rarely, had he even vaguely suspected that there was more in it than this, but it was no good anticipating the day when, he supposed, he would reach that maximum point of his powers beyond which he must inevitably decline, and be left face to face with the question whether it would not have profited him better to have ruled his life by less exigent ideals. In the meantime, his removal into the old house with the insurance marks built into its brick merely interrupted Romilly Bishop at the fifteenth chapter. As this tall man with the lean, ascetic face moved about his new abode, arranging, changing, altering, hardly yet into his working stride again, he gave the impression of an almost spinster-like precision and nicety. For twenty years past, in a score of lodgings, garrets, flats, and rooms furnished and unfurnished, he had been accustomed to do many things for himself, and he had discovered that it saves time and temper to be methodical. He had arranged with the wife of the long-nosed Barrett, a stout Welsh woman with a falsetto voice, the marionetheshire accent of which long residence in London had not perceptibly modified, to come across the square each morning to prepare his breakfast, and also to turn the place out on Saturday mornings, and for the rest he even welcomed a little housework as a relaxation from the strain of writing. His kitchen, together with the adjoining strip of an apartment into which a modern bath had been fitted, overlooked the alley at the side of the house and at one end of it was a large closet with a door, and a square sliding hatch in the upper part of the door. This had been a powder closet, and through the hatch the elaborately dressed head had been thrust to receive the click and puff of the powder pistol. Oleron puzzled a little over this closet. Then, as its use occurred to him, he smiled faintly, a little moved. He knew not by what. He would have to put it to a very different purpose from its original one it would probably have to serve as his larder. It was in this closet that he made a discovery. The back of it was shelved, and, rummaging on an upper shelf that ran deeply into the wall, Oleron found a couple of mushroom-shaped old wooden wig-stands. He did not know how they had come to be there. Doubtless the painters had turned them up somewhere or other, and had put them there. But his five rooms as a whole were short of cupboard and closet room and it was only by the exercise of some ingenuity that he was able to find places for the bestowal of his household linen, his boxes, and his seldom-used but not-to-be-destroyed accumulations of papers. 
It was in early spring that Oleron entered on his tenancy, and he was anxious to have Romilly ready for publication in the coming autumn. Nevertheless, he did not intend to force its production. Should it demand longer in the doing, so much the worse. He realised its importance, its crucial importance, in his artistic development, and it must have its own length and time. In the workroom he had recently left, he had been making excellent progress. Romilly had begun, as the saying is, to speak and act of herself, and he did not doubt she would continue to do so the moment the distraction of his removal was over. This distraction was almost over. He told himself it was time he pulled himself together again, and on a March morning he went out, returned again with two great bunches of yellow daffodils, placed one bunch on his mantelpiece between the Sheffield sticks, and the other on the table before him, and took out the half-completed manuscript of Romilly Bishop. But before beginning work, he went to a small rosewood cabinet, and took from a drawer his checkbook and passbook. He totted them up, and his monk-like face grew thoughtful. His installation had cost him more than he had intended it should, and his balance was rather less than fifty pounds, with no immediate prospect of more. Hmm, I'd forgotten rugs and chintz curtains and so forth mounted up so, said Oleron. But it would have been a pity to spoil the place for the want of ten pounds or so. Well, Romilly simply must be out for the autumn, that's all. So here goes. He drew his papers towards him. But he worked badly, or rather, he did not work at all. The square outside had its own noises, frequent and new, and Oleron could only hope that he would speedily become accustomed to these. First came hawkers with their carts and cries. At midday the children, returning from school, trooped into the square and swung on Oleron's gate, and when the children had departed again for afternoon school, an itinerant musician with a mandolin posted himself beneath Oleron's window and began to strum. This was not an unpleasant distraction, and Oleron, pushing up his window, threw the man a penny. Then he returned to his table again. But it was no good. He came to himself, at long intervals, to find that he had been looking about his room and wondering how it had formerly been furnished whether a settee in buttercup or petunia satin had stood under the farther window, whether from the centre moulding of the light, lofty ceiling had depended a glimmering crystal chandelier, or where the tambour frame or the piquet table had stood. No, it was no good. He had far better be frankly doing nothing than getting fruitlessly tired. And he decided that he would take a walk, but, chancing to sit down for a moment, dozed in his chair instead. This won't do, he yawned, when he awoke at half-past four in the afternoon. I must do better than this to-morrow. And he felt so deliciously lazy, that for some minutes he even contemplated the breach of an appointment he had for the evening. The next morning he sat down to work without even permitting himself to answer one of his three letters. Two of them tradesmen's accounts, the third a note from Miss Bengo forwarded from his old address. It was a jolly day of white and blue, with a gay noisy wind and a subtle turn in the colour of growing things, and over and over again, once or twice a minute, his room became suddenly light and then subdued again, as the shining white clouds rolled north-eastwards over the square. 
The soft, fitful illumination was reflected in the polished surface of the table, and even in the foot-worn old floor, and the morning noises had begun again. Oleron made a pattern of dots on the paper before him, and then broke off to move the jar of daffodils exactly opposite the centre of a creamy panel. Then he wrote a sentence that ran continuously for a couple of lines, after which it broke on into notes and jottings. For a time he succeeded in persuading himself that in making these memoranda he was really working. Then he rose and began to pace his room. As he did so, he was struck by an idea. It was that the place might possibly be a little better for more positive colour. It was, perhaps, a thought too pale, mild and sweet as a kind old face, but a little devitalised, even one. Yes, he decided it would bear a robuster note, more and richer flowers, and possibly some warm and gay stuff for cushions for the window seats. Of course, I really can't afford it, he muttered, as he went for a two-foot, and began to measure the width of the window recess. In stooping to measure a recess, his attitude suddenly changed to one of interest and attention. Presently he rose again, rubbing his hands with gentle glee. Oh ho, oh ho, he said. These look to me very much like window boxes, nailed up. We must look into this. Yes, those are boxes, or I'm... Oh ho, this is an adventure. On that wall of his sitting room there were two windows. The third was in another corner, and beyond the open bedroom door, on the same wall, was another. The seats of all had been painted, repainted, and painted again, and Oleron's investigating finger had barely detected the old nail-heads beneath the paint. Under the ledge over which he stooped, an old keyhole also had been puttied up. Oleron took out his penknife. He worked carefully for five minutes, and then went into the kitchen for a hammer and chisel. Driving the chisel cautiously under the seat, he started the whole lid slightly, and using the penknife, he cut along the hinged edge and outward along the ends, and then he fetched a wedge and a wooden mallet. Now for our little mystery, he said. The sound of the mallet on the wedge seemed, in that sweet and pale apartment, somehow a little brutal, nay, even shocking. The panelling rang and rattled and vibrated to the blows like a sounding board. The whole house seemed to echo. From the roomy cellarage to the garrets above, a flock of echoes seemed to awake, and the sound got a little on Oleron's nerves. All at once he paused, fetched a duster, and muffled the mallet. When the edge was sufficiently raised, he put his fingers under it and lifted. The paint flaked and stirred a little. The rusty old nails squeaked and grunted, and the lid came up, laying open the box beneath. Oleron looked into it. Save for a couple of inches of scurf and mould and old cobwebs, it was empty. No treasure there, said Oleron, a little amused that he should have thought there might have been. Romilly will still have to be out by the autumn. Let's have a look at the others. He turned to the second window. The raising of the two remaining seats occupied him well into the afternoon. That of the bedroom, like the first, was empty. But from the second seat of his sitting-room he drew out something yielding and folded and furred over an inch thick with dust. He carried the object into the kitchen and, having swept it over a bucket, took a duster to it. 
It was some sort of large bag, of an ancient, frieze-like material, and when unfolded it occupied the greater part of the small kitchen floor. In shape it was an irregular, a very irregular, triangle, and it had a couple of wide flaps, with the remains of straps and buckles. The patch that had been uppermost in the folding was of a faded yellowish-brown, but the rest of it was of shades of crimson that varied according to the exposure of the parts of it. Now whatever can that have been? Oleron mused as he stood surveying it. I give it up. Whatever it is, it's settled my work for today, I'm afraid. He folded the object up carelessly and thrust it into a corner of the kitchen. Then, taking pans and brushes and an old knife, he returned to the sitting-room and began to scrape and wash, and to line with paper his newly discovered receptacles. When he had finished, he put his spare boots and boots and papers into them, and he closed the lids again, amused with his little adventure, but also a little anxious for the hour to come when he should settle fairly down to his work again. End of part two.